Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl. And welcome to a, a late but still sort of kind of spooky Halloween-y edition of Cage Rage and Nicholas Cage podcast. Apologies it's late, as it real life got a little bit in the way. Not a great excuse when you're trying to run a weekly podcast, obviously. Um, had to do a games review. Isn't that the nerdiest excuse you've ever heard in the world? Watch Dogs Legion came out. Had to write about that. That's uh, got a code a little bit later than usual. Then had to spend an entire weekend blitzing out, pushing through that for about 30 hours of gameplay across the weekend. Late mornings, late nights, late something time. Time has no sense or meaning anymore, does it? But got that done. By the time it was done, uh, didn't leave me the usual time. I ideally like to write and uh, do my notes and get the recording done. So uh, had to take had to take a little L on the old on the old Halloween Halloween special there. But didn't want to miss out on it. I still wanted to get this done. Still wanted to get this one in the bag. So here we are with the Halloween special in november don't worry about it don't be that guy don't be an ian don't tell me about what the time is i know what the time is he's been setting off fireworks left right and center bear in mind we only live like a few feet away from each other from door to door just start setting off fireworks the other night no prior warning no warning for your boy just get flashes of color and explosions like world war three going on outside the door the cat was loving it though the cat was just Staring out of the uh, little cat flap, just looking at all the colours, watching the fireworks go up in the air. Um, seemed to think that they come into the house. Never seen a cat more interested. If anything, he would have been happy to just run outside and watch up close in person. The little four-legged weirdo, as adorable as he is. But we're here, finally got this done. Obviously, depending on when you're listening to this, it's uh, just been fireworks going off. What feel like my entire lifetime. Obviously, we've had bonfire night kicking off, and then old Biden, old Biden lad, Biden, he's in. He's done it. He's done the deal. He's done the deed. He's in. Few more fireworks there, which is a. Uh, I don't know if there was a, if people have planned on letting on fireworks to celebrate Joe Biden getting into the White House, but I guess when you've got them left over, you just uh, you need an occasion, don't you? You need an occasion. So here we are. Twenty twenty's turning round. 2020 is turning around and it's all looking a little bit of all right. So a bit more pep in the step this week. But as I say, this brings us to this week's episode. Meant to happen last week. But um, to give you the little, the, obviously the, the overview of Cage Rage, we look to watch as all of the Cage films in the chronological order, have a little chat about them, see what we like and we like a lot because we live for the Golden Hog. And it's all part of the journey to achieving true cage nirvana when it can only be achieved by consuming all the works of the greatest actor of our generation. This week, doing something a little bit different. So when I say a little bit different, obviously Halloween themed, but didn't want to jump ahead to Mandy or to Colour Out of Space because they're a little ways away in the timeline of what I'm doing here. Um, obviously Willy's Wonderland, that's not even out yet at the time of recording. The Magenta 
trilogy there so just holding off a little bit but what I found in my research was a old little film from 2000 called Shadow of the Vampire uh, now you might be saying hang on a minute hang on a minute but Nicolas Cage isn't in it okay so he's not fair enough but let me give you the rundown and you'll explain it all makes sense don't worry your boy's got you it's a metafiction horror film, Shadow of the Vampire, directed by E. Elias Murridge. It's actually second feature by that director, written by Stephen Katz, and, most importantly, produced by Nicolas Cage. Now, while it's not the first to credit him, this is actually the first film produced by Cage under the Saturn Films label, a production company that he owns. And that right there is the very tenuous connection to this Halloween-themed flick. Um, as we've already covered, Vampire's Kiss, and again, the Magenta Trilogy, a little ways off. Now, interestingly, not that I could find anyway, but there's not a lot of information about Saturn films out there that's readily available for you to find. Um, if anyone else knows if they have like an, actually a, a website or some trading information, that'd be very interesting to see, because... I couldn't find anything. Um, apparently they're set up in Hollywood, but what production company isn't these days? Other than that, you'd think it was for tax purposes or something, and they've just gone entirely off the grid. Um, it's it, genuinely fascinating, an enigma of a company. You can find out all the films that Cage has produced under Saturn Films on the Wikipedia page of his filmography, but um, but other than that, it's it's as if they don't exist. It's like chasing a ghost, you know, but... Intrigues me, compels me, and I want to know more about it. Anyways, Shadow of the Vampire is starring John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe, both previously spotted alongside Cage in Conair and Wild at Heart, respectively. Now in Shadow of the Vampire, we see John Malkovich as director F.W. Murnau struggling to create the silent classic Nosferatu in Eastern Europe. Now he's obsessed by trying to make an authentic vampire flick, the most authentic vampire flick ever seen. Well, one, too bad, Vampire's Kiss is already taken, mate. So, he employs himself a quote-unquote real vampire in the form of Willem Dafoe, a.k.a. Max Shrek in this film. Um, now, apparently trained by Stanislavski himself, Murno explains to the crew that Shrek is the ultimate method actor, given the fact he will only appear in character and he will only appear at night. So with that description, and if I hadn't told you who was in this flick, would this not already sound like 100% like a Cage film? It, it would, wouldn't it, honestly? I mean, originally Cage was actually intended for the role of Max Shrek. He'd eyed it up for himself. Um, and when you watch the film, you know, it would have been, this would have been a perfect Cage role. I mean, like as a... Previous guest Tom said a few weeks ago there are Nicolas Cage films and films with Nicolas Cage. This would have become a Nicolas Cage film, I feel. But he would offer it up to Defoe after Defoe had expressed interest in the film. And you see again there, we have the selfless Cage, the heroic Cage, putting the best interests of the film before the interests of his hog. You absolutely love to see it. I love to see it. I love to continue to see it. He had, however, always eyed old Johnny Malkold, semi-skinned Malkovich as Murno, and what the greatest actor of this generation wants, the greatest actor 
of this generation will absolutely get. Now, consensus for the film, mainly positive, love to see that. Most commentators giving particular praise to Defoe's performance and Shadow of the Vampire currently holding an approval rating of 82% on Rotten Toms. Uh, now, Golden Hogger, an absolute boy, Roger Ebert awarded the film his special jury prize on his list of the 10 best movies of 2000, further praising Defoe's, and I quote, astonishing performance, and it is. Defoe would win more adulation as well. He would be uh, the winner of the Los Angeles Films and Critic Association Award for Best Supporting Actor in 2000. He'd also get a nomination for Best Supporting Lad at the same Academy Awards that same year. So, lovely bit of a bit of praise for our boy Defoe there. And Shadow Vampire made on a very small budget of eight million dollars. It would go on to make a modest little sum, a tidy little sum of eleven point two million at the box office. So, lovely. Lovely bit of uh, horror factoids for you there, isn't it? You'd love to see that. So, with that all said, I hope it makes sense now. A little um, cageless horror film. But, as producer, his influence is far-reaching, far devoid from not having any minute. It's uh, rich for his production capabilities, and his golden hog is very much present in this film. So, if you've seen Nosferatu... um, Obviously, it's silent vampire flick, um, creepy bald guy. We've all met him. If I say if, when Ian shaves his head, very similar, except, well, main difference being he does come out in the sun and he gets a stupid, stupid red little face. But, you know, social vampire, though. If you've seen um, What We Do in the Shadows and Colin Robertson, the energy vampire who just drains you when he speaks, then... Very much the same, and I think the only way to stop him at this point is to stake him through the heart. If the FBI are listening, that is a joke. I don't intend to do that if he ends up dead in that manner. Um, I didn't do it. Didn't do it. You can't prove it. You've got nothing on me. So we begin with the film at the Joe Film Studios in Berlin, 1921. We get a few intertitles in this film, it gives us a bit of information as well to stick to that uh, classic 20s aesthetic. Um, a lot about this sticks to the aesthetic of the time. A lot of nice touches to detail. Uh, a lot of nice production, which is really appreciated. Um, from the sort of hair and makeup and the costumes to the sort of cameras that they use as well. It's basically a, like a fictionalised retelling of uh, the making of Nosferatu. So it takes real influence from the making of the film, but horrors it up a little bit so it's uh, interesting you don't always know what's real and what's made up except for well probably the whole Willem Dafoe part I'm not saying that Willem Dafoe has been made up but if you're not a fan of him that is often known as a Willem Dafobia um, so watch out for that sometimes if you find him crawling just across your floor scurrying across the kitchen you have to put a little cup over him put a slide some newspaper underneath and just shoo him off back outside don't worry Willem Dafoe is more scared of you than you are of him. But we learn from the intertitles that uh, F.W. Murnau, Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau. What a great name. Might change my middle name to Wilhelm. Wilhelm, Daryl Wilhelm Edge, D.W. Edge. That might be my author's name if I ever write a book. Um, so he's been trying to make the uh, first adaption 
first to film adaption of the novel Dracula, but the Bram Stoker estate has uh, refused him permission to do this. They don't want this maverick German director anywhere near their um, their, their work. So instead, as a massive fuck you to the uh, estate, he just changes the name of his vampire to Count Orlock, calls the film Nosferatu, huge hog energy, the end. Um, obviously, no, not the end, but can you imagine if it was? Just fuck you to the Stokers. And obviously, you get the sense with uh, Malkovich's character, Myrna, that he's this genius. Um, he's far more confident. He's a bit elusive in the fact that he doesn't tell his... Uh, he just doesn't tell his team really anything about the film. He just sort of really questions why they don't have this unwavering loyalty to him, expects them just to follow with everything that he does. I think the most frightening thing for me, being so used to seeing him without, is the idea of uh, Malkovich with a head of hair. It's um, very unsettling. I had to take a few minutes just to drink him in with this uh, fine mane of brown hair. But, hey, Malkovich does as Malkovich does, and he works that fucking hairstyle very, very well. Now there's the actor Greta Schroeder, played by Catherine McCormick. She's the lead actress in the film. Uh, sort of very popular actress in Germany. She's sort of going through the motions with this film a bit. She's on the verge of much bigger things and sort of breaking through into bigger productions. She's got a lot of questions from her now. She's asking, you know, why she's really in the film, why the production has to leave Berlin. She's got a lot of roles coming up. But Mer now, perhaps kind of ominously, tells her, you know, this is the role that will define you. This is a role that's almost... Um, going to require sacrifice because it's going to be so huge, so big. It's going to make your career. There's almost a homicidal sense of calm to Murno. He he knows how good that the film is going to be, even though, even though quite importantly, it's a horror film. Uh, it doesn't appear that the vampire has been cast. So his other um, sort of producers and such, they're questioning, you know. You know, what's going on with the film? What are we doing? What do we need to? Uh, how do we need to move on with this? But the only person who seems to know is Gustav von Wagenheim, played by Eddie Izzard, the other main actor. Um, he enlightens the producers. He's been told that this vampire will be played by an actor called Max Schreck. He's a bit of an obscure character actor, part of the Reinhardt's um, production company very dedicated to his craft and as we mentioned earlier he will only appear in character he will only appear at night so the crew are obviously a bit concerned as to um why mono has been keeping them in the dark about this and it's a question that you sort of start asking yourself as well you know is um is there more to max shrek than meets the eye is he just fully committed to the role you know because well, that's the thing, isn't it? You do get some of these actors who, for certain roles, they remain in character even when the cameras are not running. Um, I think, what was it recently? Was it Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman in, um, I think it was called Man on the Moon, that sort of behind-the-scenes biographic film. He stayed in character all that time. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix as well. Um, was that you would never really hear when they just stayed in character the whole time, so... It's not unheard of. These these acting styles can happen. These can take place and you get a lot of actors who fully, fully commit to these roles. So 
Um, I don't know if they did it so much in 20s German cinema. I wasn't there. Answers on a postcard to the film auteurs out there, but it's it's interesting. It builds up this. It really builds up early on this sort of sense of um, unease. Like we we just don't know what's going on. We're just as in the dark as the crew are, you know. And why has he been keeping him in the dark? Why won't he tell them who this character, who this person is? But Mano, he seems to have it all in the bag. Now he offers a fairly rousing speech to the rest of the uh, the Casto crew there. This is going to be sort of the defining film of a generation. It will offer a context as sure as the grave. And again, this self-confidence, you feel compelled uh, just to follow him, to take his word like he... But you also know there's something he's not telling us as well. But um, he comes across as quite strict in this, the way that he's written and the way he's portrayed. Uh, Some of the research I read suggested that um, this wasn't quite correct with Murnau apparently he was quite a sensitive quite sort of sympathetic director very in touch with the needs of the cast and the crew so um, I think with a few things they take a few liberties here well obviously they'll take a few liberties as we get into it the uh, Max Shrek he takes liberties with people's lives shall we say so um, uh, now we get that the film filming has moved to Czechoslovakia Again, the crew not really sure why this is all going on. The extras are just the people who live in the village. The director won't give the crew any insight into the nighttime scenes. Um, now, I would suggest I've never directed before, but if you're going to make a vampire film, you'd think that maybe the nighttime scenes are kind of important. Um, I noticed as well during the filming of the scenes, all the crew are wearing lab coats as well, so it's like the filming was very much a science now i don't know if it was intentional uh the lab coats or if that was just genuinely a uniform that was worn during the, the silent movie era but it almost seems to come with this uh science versus religion kind of aspect the the science of the filmmaking coming at odds with the uh the sort of more stoic nature of the town there's a villager in there uh one of the locals who prevents them from filming until all the crosses that they've removed have been replaced, but they're told that they simply overwhelm the scene. Um, is it just that they overwhelm the scene? Is it is there more to the removal of the crosses? Um, foreshadowing, forewarning perhaps? But with this one villager being um, very unsettled, very frightened, we do get our first glimpse of um, Max Shrek. He's being given a, uh, a live ferret in a cage so um ferret delicious treat or just vampiric nighttime snack no different from getting a slice of cheese out of the fridge at one in the morning you tell me um the first time we properly see him they are filming gustav's first meeting with count orlock now mano is still avoiding a majority of questions about the star he just tells him look leave shrek alone he's going for a different kind of of authenticity he only reveals that he found him in the same hall in which they filmed his appearance so like at some point in the past he just found this guy in full costume full makeup just lurking around a castle asked him do you want to be in a film the rest was history that that seems to be how smart films start on certain um 
adult websites. I don't know anything about adult websites. I've never been on one in my life. You can't prove that I have. So what we know is that he's a bit of a hole dweller. He eats ferrets. Clearly a deal has been made between them, as some of the crew start to wonder if he really is from an acting company. But from what we see of Defoe so far and what we see of him later as Max Shrek, it's genuinely creepy. Honestly, like watching this, you don't know if you are watching like a bemused vampire or if Shrek was just some kind of eccentric or bad actor. It's such a bizarre fantastical and yet intriguing performance as well um and it's not not many other performances like it i think if it wasn't caged then only defoe could have pulled this off if you ask me i mean gustav in the film also comments on these peculiarities but um these are all defended by Murno as well and one of the other intriguing things is that there's so little information on shrek um that you just, you don't know anything about him except what Murnau tells you, so you kind of have to just take it all at face value. It's diff- it was difficult to tell um, early on as well how old he was meant to be as well, so was, you know, was he 100 years old, or was he just so deeply in character and fresh from Vampire Rada at 20 years old? Um, there was a legend, apparently, that Max Shrek was, in reality, an actual vampire, because on the role of the real Nosferatu film he played it so convincingly um because he was just a really good actor and that's that's literally the story he was such a good actor that people thought he was an actual supernatural threat but you know that's that's the thing sometimes these these roles are so consuming and so gripping that you lose sense of the person behind them um you know I mean Leonardo DiCaprio he was so good in the Titanic sometimes it was hard to tell that he wasn't a boat you know but given the film is silent as well so anytime they're filming these scenes they're always uh effectively narrated by Murno as well so he's just giving this sort of um direction saying you're looking like this you're feeling like that you've got this sense here this is going on so very strict in terms of the direction that the actors have to follow there was a bit where uh Gustav and Count Orlock was also Max Shrek. They were uh, at this dinner table. Um, Orlock is always reading these weird papers with this wide-eyed look on his face. And Gustav is being instructed to cut this bread. And Murnau's just like, and now you're slicing it. Slicing. Slicing. And it just reminded me, if you've seen it, there's this video on YouTube by Peter Serafenowicz. I think it's just called Chicken or Cutting or something where he's narrating this video of this same chicken being cut into sort of repeatedly, and he just goes, cutting, cutting, cutting. Um, so very funny to see a slice uh, of a loaf being cut with such intensity. But um, that's quickly flipped. Gustav cuts his thumb because it's sudden change in direction by Murnau. And then uh, Shrek just fucking pounces on his thumb and just tries to suck the blood from his thumb and um so despite all the clear danger and recklessness that shrek poses to the film Murno still only reluctantly scolds him whereas gustav labels him as a uh a stanislavsky lunatic these fucking method actors with their fucking methods of acting to fucking swine the lot of them go back to the clown school you're bald shit 
Um, now, at the same time, there's a lead cameraman. He was previously attacked by Shrek in the scene where we first meet him coming out of the castle. Suddenly, he's just found inside, just like on the floor, just out completely out of it, out of sorts. He just starts getting sicker and sicker, falls into this trance, has to leave the production, and eventually Myrna has to rip into Shrek and says, look, you've got to control yourself. <laughs> you can't eat my crew. They're all kind of important. And certainly from Murnau's perspective, that scene's played very, very straight. But um, just how he has to defend them, Shrek's like, well, I don't think you need any more writers on this film. And Murnau's like, the writer is actually quite necessary to the film. Um, and then he's just pacing around, going like, why couldn't you eat the script, girl, instead? And Shrek just growls. He's like, mm, well, I'll eat her later. Um, I sounded a bit more like Jean-Claude Van Damme than the actual vampire in this book. Just imagine Jean-Claude Van Damme as a denim-wearing vampire and you're about halfway there. Um, I mean, poor script writers, though. Shrek really wants to eat one. And now for myself, you know, a week a week removed from Halloween. Um, this film has left me wondering, you know what? I wonder how a script writer tastes. Um, it's just a very captivating performance. It's so captivating that I'm now considering human flesh. So, and that's what gets the awards. If you can turn me in from just an average person into a fucking sleeper agent of cannibalism, then you know you're fucking onto something special there. Um, I think Mono just wants to roll his sleeves up and for fucking scrap with the bastard because even though he needs him on the film, he's uh, risking the integrity of the production he just wants to scrap with the bastard, but Shrekky Boy challenges the this. He mentions that, well, this is at odds with my immortality. You can't harm me. Um, and again, let's be honest. I mean, I've mentioned it earlier, but this is a role that's just built for Nicolas Cage, isn't it? I mean, if Nicolas Cage said to you he was a mortal, you wouldn't question it because he is. And he has a golden hog. Um, I don't think I need to present any evidence. On that, just like Trump apparently doesn't need to present any evidence on election fraud. Topical. Um, apparently, though, Willem Dafoe was actually offered the role of the Green Goblin in the 2002 Spider-Man film based on his performance in this role. So he's something of a scientist himself, you know. Now, a bit later, they need to film on an island. It's not really explained why they need to move to these production, to these different locations all the time. Um, I think the implication is that it's part of the deal that shrek has with Murno um to some extent but then shrek says that he um doesn't want to do it he refuses to travel by boat so Murno has a, a duplicate ship built to cater for the increasingly difficult star that's the thing with these stars isn't it you know take an inch they give a mile um or take give an inch take oh that is right i got that right the first time it's taken inch feel fuck you wife i think that was what i said last time i'm gonna to stick to that one it's really hard right i'm becoming aware of this now i keep saying shrek and it's hard not to think of the ogre isn't it because even though they all speak the german accents it's you can't shake the feeling that one of them could have just slipped into scottish now obviously this came before shrek came out and interesting side note Nicholas Cage was actually offered the role of Shrek before Mike Myers, so fuck you, Mike Myers, for stealing us of a generation of talent for the greatest actor of our generation. Nicholas Cage of a Scottish accent, would he have 
Just imagine Shrek with Nicolas Cage's face. Terrifying. And yet, it's in your mind now. And you can't get it out. Because you know on a personal, deep into the, deep in the fucking fibres of your DNA, it makes perfect sense. Um, back to the film from that little tangent there. The one thing that's keeping Shrek in line is that he gets the opportunity to act with Greta. Um, now, by this point, he's actually already commented on her nice bosoms. If the influence of Cage isn't already evident, then I don't know what else to tell you. So now with all this malarkey that has kicked off, Myrna has had to go back to Berlin to seek another cameraman. Um, Shrek joins the producer Albin and the screenwriter Henrik. Um, and they said, oh, did you know that this was actually based on Dracula? And then Shrek explains he's read Dracula. Um, and he discusses in some detail, you know, what he got from the book was the vampire's loneliness and there's a real sadness in that vampires, especially Dracula of all vampires, would need a servant. Um, he offers a little, um, a little, some little nuggets and little vampy nugs about himself. He said that he was turned into a vampire by a woman. Um, that's all, all the information we get there. He also adds that he's too old to create vampires himself before he just fucking snatches a bat out of the air and sucks it dry. Honestly, if we just sent Nosferatu to Wuhan um, Covid would have been over and done with in minutes now because Albin and Henrik are just fucking drunk on schnapps they just assume fuck me he's a good actor isn't he how many actors do you know that snatch bats out of the air and fucking suck the blood out of them other than maybe I don't know um, Patrick Stewart I don't know I struggled for an actor's name of Patrick Stewart I thought in my brain he went, you know what, Patrick Stewart has definitely trained an animal before, so is that libel? Am I have I just put myself up for a libel clause there? Um I don't think that Patrick Stewart drinks blood. Probably. Okay. So take that, Picard. You 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 you, you daft you daft bugger. Well, speaking of good actors, uh, Max Shrek is so fucking good that he later attacks another crew member and yeets him off the top of the boat that they've built. Very Stanislavski, I think. I don't know. I only subscribe to the Novo Shamanic actings. This is all open to interpretation as far as I am concerned. Now, after this, we meet the new cinematographer, uh, Fritz Wagner, the um, very dashing dashing cinematographer got this almost like pilot attire on that jacket and this swept back hair um what a guy what a lad he's looking for shots he comments that max shrek looks more dead than men who we saw actually dead in the war he's got this uh, huge sense of optimism he's he's not obviously not frazzled by uh, the presence of shrek like the rest of the crew are and um it's a bit, a bit it has a little jolt of energy to the film and um Again, another in, another intriguing casting choice. Uh, not in the sense that would have cast someone else for it, but um, he comes with this gusto, that's um, this bravado that you quite like. Yeah, I'm into this Fritz lad. He's got some, he's got chutzpah. He's got some of that spunk that uh, you love to see. Um, his optimism, though, and Shrek's, and I use air quotes here, method acting. 
are a little bit advanced and it was um actually quite amusing to see shrek just become really annoyed with him just this image of him lying in his coffin staring up all wide-eyed was just very funny solid stuff um we also get this sort of turnaround in confidence between Murno and shrek as well Murno's dips uh shrek's begin to rise now Murno's just trying to protect his film and crew until the end of the film he just needs them around and to keep shrek at bay until filming has been wrapped but shrek makes it clear that this is his film now and he really wants to uh, get to that acting with greta now let me tell you in no uncertain terms Max Shrek has got a fucking rager for Greta. And shout out to Greta, by the way. Honestly, the rager is so massive he can open his coffin lid from inside of it. Magical stuff. I think that's why he walks around so stiffly as well. His hog has just impeded all of his fucking limbs and his functions. So as we reach the last uh, 25 minutes or so of the film, it moves to um, Helegoland, Heligoland, which I think is German for Legoland. It's this uh, peninsula island place uh, google it i'm not going to explain it to you it's too geographical and wordy get a sat enough grow up albert and fritz get this confession from Murno, who is high on um laudanum i think it's called which is like an opium related drug he confesses that look there is no max shrek the person who is uh, pretending to be max shrek uh, pretending to be an actor he is indeed a vampire and to make the most realistic film vampire film known to man he offered the vampire everlasting life offered him up greta as well so in layman's terms he sort of almost guaranteed him a bona fide raw dog free of charge the spirit of cage truly does guide us all um now between the two of them albert and fritz they also realize there's no way off the island so what they're going to have to do is get to the end of the film and they've got no choice but to film shrek and greta scene together and then just fucking wing it and take it from there now when the film in this climactic scene um greta actually sees that shrek has no reflection and she loses her shit but Murno pumps her full of laudanum recalling um as greta recalls Murno's words that this role would make her great and be her ultimate sacrifice so they the scene they film of orlock just waiting by her neck licking his lips really uncomfortable um you almost feel like he's lingering over you like he's right by your neck you know just this awful feeling of the arch vampire defoe eating your shit right up so he does bite into a neck like a granny smith apple it makes me just oh tense just sort of talking about it now boy's a damn freak yeah um he does get a cheeky grope in though again straight from the cage school of acting but when they film that scene realizing that they might be in a little bit of danger fritz and album then try to get the drop on the vamp but shrek is just out there snapping necks cashing checks no selling everything so he takes the two boys out um at this point they're sort of got a bit of a daytime filming scene going on they've shut out all the natural light because because this is what shrek wanted um obviously confirmed by Myrna that he is a vampire so they try to get the drop on him. They're killed. They're taken out. He advances on Murno um, as well, but Murno is, this point, so far gone, so obsessed with making the film and basically consumed by um, insanity, basically, that he doesn't even notice that he's in danger. He's too busy filming his fucking smut 
to be bothered about being cracked open like a fucking walnut. He looks at Murnau and says to him, we need to film your death scene now, and says if it isn't in the frame, it doesn't exist, which is apparently, actually, a paraphrased piece of advice the director himself, in that their real life, gave to a young Alfred Hitchcock advice Hitchcock would never soon forget. Obviously, it's taken a little bit out of context here, but um, the point remains. So, as I said, Murnau, basically insane by this point, uh, doesn't notice his goodnight dad for Albin and Fritz. He keeps asking the crew, like, if someone can just grab the stake and just put it back there, it represents the futility of uh, trying to take action on things. And um, fortunately, the rest of the crew arrive and open up the locked room and the natural daylight eviscerates Shrek. I think the reason he was a bit sluggish there is that the laudanum in Greta's system, obviously he'd been drinking her blood, so now it's in his system and makes him a bit sluggish as well. But with um, Myrna has been evaporated by light and the two bodies of Albin and Fritz on the floor and Greta, who I think is basically dead, they just see how mad Myrna has become. Um, and what a fucking shit show this whole film has become. As he then stops filming and says, thank you. I think we have it as the uh, as the film comes to an end there. So there we have it. A week late, but don't worry about it. You know what? I hadn't heard of this film before. Um, this one hadn't heard of until about a week ago, but really, really enjoyed it. The foe, you know, equally terrifying and captivating in equal measure as Nosferatu, right up until his demise at the end, just from start to finish. Even in the scenes where he's just, you know, lurking high up or just acting weirdly on camera, um, there was something so magnetic about the performance that you just couldn't take your eyes off him. And I've I've often felt myself in terms of I think range and commitment to a lot of roles that Defoe is maybe well in my opinion perhaps second to Cage, you know, so. Fuck it, stick them both on the Rushmore of acting greats as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's strange, though, that this film earned him that award consideration, and yet it remains relatively very obscure in the back catalogue of his work. It's about as obscure in his back catalogue as it is difficult to find information on Saturn films, which I still think is a front. I'm still not convinced it's a real thing. I'm sure there's some tax avoidance going on there. Um, it will require some further investigation. I don't think we're quite done with the works of Saturn Films on this podcast just yet. But um, that aside, I would definitely recommend checking this one out. It's, I think for me it seems to touch upon, I guess, the sacrifices people will um, that they will make, the lengths they will go to to see their dreams realised. And I think there's enough substance in there enough drama throughout to keep you invested, uh, just enough comedy as well to keep things from becoming too dark. And for me, Defoe carries a lot of the film on his very um, weird and wild performance and balances these contrasts well. I mean, sometimes with as much as a wide-eyed stare, which I think you can't help but think of uh, Nicolas Cage's turn as Peter Lowe in Vampire's Kiss, two of the best wide-eye actors in the business cage and Defoe there, but and obviously can't ignore John Malkovich, who is also as fantastic and exciting to watch as he always ever is. So 
it's John Malkovich, for goodness sake. Come on now. So, um, again, I know we've missed the ship very, very slightly, but next Halloween, if you're looking for something slightly different, something a bit dark, something a bit creepy, but also something that's got a bit of thought in there, a bit provoking, um, something a little bit off the beaten track that's, uh, you know, a bit of a left-field choice that you wouldn't have otherwise considered, this one's a this one's a sleeper hit. Don't sleep on this one, you know. Um, go for Shadow of the Vampire. But for all the praise that we throw on this film, obviously, major credit has to go to Nicolas Cage for being a fucking sick producer. What a guy. What a hog. So that brings us to the end of the Halloween-ish, late-ish, but don't worry about it-ish episode. I think in Cage terms... I don't know if I can really give this a a cage award because cage isn't in it, but fuck it, we'll give it a golden cage anyway. Um, it's just just a very good film, a very good film, and it's um, been thinking about it quite a lot. And it's one of those films um, that I would love to watch again. I would definitely watch it again. Um, so check it out, please do. Let me know your thoughts on it as well on the usual social medias at cage underscore podcast on twitter at cage rage pod on instagram you can find us on all the usual streaming services spotify amazon music stitcher and pod chaser um if you're on any of those please consider giving me a follow and a you know give it a rating if you want to it's nice for my um ever harmed ego to uh, get these um affirmations that people are out there listen to this bloody nonsense um but we'd love to love to hear from you on this one again hope you enjoyed it i had a lot of fun watching this one we will see you next week for more of the same old bullshit but until then keep on keep on caging uh, bye